So welcome back, everyone, to the ABSA podcast series. This time, not on duty, but rather our study time channel. And today, we'll be discussing all things around mindfulness, dealing with isolation, quarantining for our boarding staff and our boarding students. And with that in mind, I'm super excited to be chatting with psychologist lead from one of our partners in Komodo, Ilya Lindsay. Ilya, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, no worries. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Ollie, here at ABSA, we obviously know all the work that you and Komodo do. Uh, however, for those people that may not know too much about you, I thought it'd be uh, we, could, we could kick things off perhaps with a, a brief summary of the work that you do with Komodo. Yeah, so I, I think the best way to describe what I do with Komodo is that I do my best to weave a psychology lens across everything that we do as a company. So whether that's uh, how we work with our schools, whether that's providing education and resources for our partners um, and just working as well with our development team to try, like I said, and weave as much evidence-based research and that psychology lens across everything that we do. So, I mean, I think the team at Komodo have an amazing vision and passion and it's been really awesome that we can weave the science and a bit of the research in behind it now as well, which makes for a very exciting uh, 2022 for us. Most definitely, and um, and thank you for for that for sharing that with us. And um, I certainly am talking to the right person in, in terms of everything that we're we're going to get into um, today. Um, as we both know, here in Australia, but also over there in New Zealand, things are quite uncertain um, around what's going to happen when COVID cases hit the boarding houses. Uh, of course, that with that comes anxiety, staff concerned around mental health issues that comes with it. Um, having to deal with isolation and quarantine of staff and, and boarders, it is quite a scary thought that's in front of us. Um, from the work that you've done, earlier and your background and your knowledge, what can you share with us that might be able to help our staff or boarders around the uncertainty ahead of us? Yeah, I, I think, well, exactly what you said, there's so much uncertainty and it's, it's not only around uh, when is this going to hit or when is this going to affect our staff and students, but also what will that actually look like, you know, between the states and here in New Zealand, we see it here too. The government decisions are changing, policies change as well. So so uncertainty is everywhere that we look at this point. And for me, the biggest piece of advice that I give schools, teachers, parents and students as well is the most important thing we can do right now is just stay present if we let ourselves get caught up in the what ifs and trying to predict the future, I mean, I think we can look back on the last six to 12 months and see how even when we try to predict what's going to happen in this pandemic, nothing seems to be falling, how the predictions were lying. So the most important thing we can do is to stay present in, in what's going on right now. And Sure, we can do some planning and we can do our best to think ahead, but it's really important to stay grounded as to what what freedoms do we have now, what resources do we have now, and and being able to embrace that. Because if we're living, you know, two steps ahead of ourselves and we're already worrying about when we're going to have to isolate whilst we've still got freedoms right now, you know, it's a bit of a catch there. So being present, being grounded as to where we are right now is probably the the, the best thing we can do to build up our resilience for, for what is inevitably coming our way at mm-hmm. some point in the next six to 12 months. 
It is a tricky one, isn't it? Because at the same time, as you say, you do need to plan ahead for the, for the scenarios and the and the you know the what ifs, as you say. Um, and having that flexibility there, I, I'm sure, is is also crucial crucial as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, it's so easy for me to say this, but it's about accepting that uncertainty as well. And like you just said, being flexible um, with it. And it's great to have plans. It's great to have structures and know that those plans and structures are going to have to flex with whatever the landscape looks like in the next kind of six months. Again, like I know it's so easy for me to sit here and be like, no, you just need to accept it and embrace it. But I suppose what we do know is if you don't embrace the uncertainty and you really try to fight up against it, it only causes more stress, more distress, and actually means you're in a much worse place to make those decisions and plans as well. Mm -hmm. So yes, being present is one part, but the other part is trying to find acceptance in the uncertainty Mm -hmm. um, as well. Let's move forward. And I know you said we, we shouldn't really plan ahead too much and all these types of things, but I do want to talk about probably the inevitable, um, and that is if a board or a staff member is stuck in isolation for seven days uh, and they're missing out on that social contact with others, what can they do to help themselves? Yeah, so I think, I mean, we are social beings, so the most important thing to do when you have to isolate is to find connection in whatever way we can. I suppose that is the beauty of where we're at with technology right now is that even if you're having to isolate alone in a home, you have access to, as long as you have access to Wi-Fi and data, you can video call, you can stay in touch. And I suppose if I look at the research that's coming out of the UK at the moment, who have obviously been through you know, the same kind of level of lockdowns and school shutting down and coming back, et cetera, they, the most protective thing that they've found is that as long as relationships stay connected in some way whilst being socially distanced mm. um, is the most protective thing we can do for our mental health at that time. So, yep, you're right. It's inevitable. We're going to have to isolate probably at some point. Stay as connected as you can with your support system, with your close kind of network of relationships and, and use technology to be able to do that. You know, we're mm. in a brilliant space and time to be able to use video calling, to be able to use messaging, Um, That kind of thing is the most important thing we can do. I think other than staying connected, it's about trying to find a routine in their isolation. Uh, Seven days is a long time to go just just being. So if you normally get up at 6.30 in the morning, you still get up at 6.30. If you usually have breakfast at this time, you do. Um, I suppose depending on your restrictions, whether you're allowed outside and things like that, trying to create a routine within this unusual time is, is really important as well. Mm, I think that's a really good point, actually, because like I, if I look at myself, for example, and I was to go into isolation for seven days, it's sort of like, oh, where do I start? You know, do I get an yeah. extra bit of a sleep in or what, what's happening here? So, <laughs> well, and, I, and I guess that leads to the next question because, you know, how it's probably a difficult question for you to answer, but how do we get, say our borders, we've got a border in isolation, how do we get them to take that first step? Yeah, I suppose that's a hard one because a lot of it relies on some internal motivation. And I think actually what we find is, like you said, if if you personally were in isolation, you're kind of like, oh, 
Mm. Do we get to sleep in? Like, this is a bit novel. <laughs> but seven days is a long time and that novelty does wear off pretty quickly. Um, so I think all we can do is kind of provide our boarders and our students with why this is a good idea. You know, if, if, if they like looking at the research, there's heaps of TED Talks on this. You can just watch it on YouTube, um, you know, or trying to give them the reasons why this routine is important. Um, and the thing is, is even if they don't follow that to start off with, that internal motivation comes because that novelty will wear off like yeah. seven days on your own is a long time. So even if the first two days is, yeah, sweet, extra sleep in, yeah. bit of Netflix, <laughs> you know, that's going to change up pretty quickly um, yeah. when you're on your own for that long. So trying to give as much external motivation as we can, but knowing that actually students should be able to find that internal motivation to stick with it too, because um, seven days alone is pretty uncomfortable otherwise. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and it's a really good segue actually, because it's obviously important for those not in isolation as well to help those that are in isolation. So for their, for, for boarders who may have fellow boarders who are out of isolation or our boarding staff, some of their colleagues who are, who are out of isolation, what can they be doing um, to look after those that are in isolation? I think it goes back to what we were saying before about being connected um, and, and reaching out to our friends, our colleagues who are in isolation if we're out of it. Um, you know, having a conversation, asking them what they've been up to in their day, keeping them clued in with what's going on kind of in this world outside of their isolation bubble. Because I think that's also the thing is that we need to realise it's going to be quite hard for some people who may have to isolate numerous times mm -hmm. to kind of come in and out of their isolation bubble and then come back to the real world and do their normal job. And then in two weeks' time, might be isolating again. So we've really got to keep that communication going so that we can help staff and students kind of transition easy in and out of these isolation bubbles, which, you know, unfortunately could happen numerous times throughout the kind of school term. Mm. Mm. Is there any signs that people can be looking for um, either before or during isolation to, to pick up on that, you know, someone might be struggling? Yeah, I think being able, I suppose, first, if you think for yourself, what could be the signs or flags for you? Uh, difficulties concentrating. So even if you've kind of set out to, I'm going to go for my time outside now and then I'm going to sit down and do an hour worth of schoolwork or reading or whatever it might be. And if you're noticing that you actually can't maintain that concentration or you can't follow through with those tasks that you've set yourself, um, that can be an important kind of flag for, I suppose, yourself and those around you if you're not meeting those expectations. The other thing to be mindful of is your sleep. Sleep is one of the best biological indicators we've got. Um, if you're noticing struggling to fall asleep, if you're noticing waking through the night, you know, they're all kind of signs that our body or mind is under some kind of stress. Um, and, I mean, it is, it's kind of a genius biological marker that we've got mm. to signal that, hey, something's not going quite right. Um, so watching your sleep, watching that concentration and the motivation to complete tasks. And then the other one, I suppose, for the people on the outside looking in is, is are you hearing from them? Are you getting that communication back? Um, are people isolating further or withdrawing further um, whilst they're in their isolation bubble? Mm. 
yeah so I think we all have a bit of a responsibility there to be checking in on each other you know and there is no reason why we can't ask people how they sleep are and we can't ask people you know what have they been doing for their day have they found it hard have they found it easy to get through that you know to kind of prompt that reflection of the person in isolation as well mm, mm, no really good points um you mentioned the word mindful there and off air we spoke a lot around the word <laughs> mindfulness um, my favorite word jared <laughs> your favorite word that's for sure um can you share with us exactly what you mean when you say the word mindfulness yeah so I suppose it's it's a hard one because mindfulness gets thrown around a lot <laughs> um, in kind of the well-being space at the moment. But when I'm referring to mindfulness, I'm talking about uh, this kind of mental space where you can pay attention in an intentional way. So you're paying attention to that present moment on purpose and without any kind of judgments. So you're not letting your thoughts race forward. You're not letting them dig too far in the past. You're just being present with where you are. And I suppose one way I like to explain mindfulness is to explain what mindlessness would be. So if we're being mindless, we're kind of just on autopilot, just kind of going through the motions. This is kind of when you're driving home from work and you're like, oh, was that a red light? Was that a green light? And you're just kind of going through the, maybe it's just me. No, it's just going through the motions. Um, and, and we don't really change course until you know, an emergency bell is signaling. Whereas if you can be mindful, you're aware of what's going on around you. You're anchored to kind of your environment and, and what's going on both internally, but externally around you as well. That's helped me a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how can we turn mindfulness into a useful skill with, you know, the isolation, quarantine, uncertainty that's in front of us? Yeah. So, for me where mindfulness becomes really important is what we were talking about right at the start how I keep saying we've got to be present we've got to be aware of what's going on right now and mindfulness activities allow you to to drop an anchor to right now to to help you stay present so the beauty of mindfulness is that it's it's in your brain it's in it's a mind state so it's with you you have access to it wherever you go and you can literally turn any exercise into a mindfulness exercise so it doesn't matter if you're isolating alone it doesn't matter if you're spending time inside outside you can turn anything into a mindfulness activity so my favorite example that I often use with people is to ask how many times they have a shower most people say at least once a day and so I asked them to, instead of having to find this extra time to become mindful or to do a mindfulness activity, is to just use their shower as a mindfulness activity. So asking them to close their eyes and actually pay attention to what it feels like when the water first hits your back. Pay attention to what your shower gel might smell like or pay attention to what it feels like if you start to turn the tap cool or hotter, that kind of thing. So we don't actually need to sit down and meditate or sit down and do a formal mindfulness activity. We can mm. find anything that is already in our daily routine and just make it mindful mm. by paying attention, by setting down that anchor. Because I don't know about you, but I don't really pay attention to how I shower until someone tells me, what did you notice in that first 20 seconds when you when you were under the water kind of thing? Yeah. And, and I imagine 
in doing that, you can make that a bit of an ongoing strategy. You know, it's not something that you necessarily do once or, um, you know, you do for a week and then you stop doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe that's one of the biggest mistakes when people think of mindfulness is they're like, oh, I'll do this kind of hour long course or watch this webinar and, and, I, and I've got it sorted. But actually mindfulness is is one of those things that the more frequently we practice it, uh, it's almost it's a muscle. It's a state of mind that grows and becomes stronger and more easy to access the more times we do it. Mm. And I think, I mean, what I've noticed personally, like I practice mindfulness each day, but also what the research tells us as well is that the parts of your brain that signal stress calm down. The more that you practice mindfulness, those stress sensors become less reactive. So you're not only helping yourself in that moment to feel more present and to calm and slow things down, but actually in the long term, you're actually building brain resilience. And so that when the stressful time does come, your brain isn't so reactive to that stress and actually that gives you much better chance at making good decisions and being able to plan appropriately. And if we think of the uncertainty of what's coming, if you've got a brain that's been trained to remain calm and and to remain focused when making those difficult decisions, then I think you're in a much better position than someone who hasn't had that time and that practice and that mind state. Mm, no, most definitely. And before we do finish up, um, it, you mentioned then when it does come um, to, to, to you know someone who's really struggling in isolation or whatever it might, whatever situation that, that they're going through. Um, mm. Do you have one piece of advice uh, that you might be able to pass on to them if they really are struggling? Yeah, I think we talk a lot about, I know I've said it, don't plan too far ahead, but <laughs> one thing you can plan ahead is, is having these contacts, having these people that you can reach out to if you're really struggling. So whether that's actually a close family or friend member or whether that's actually professional support. So I don't know what the helplines are that you have access to over in Oz, but in New Zealand we've got Healthline and Kidsline and um, those kind of resources that are there 24-7. And I think if you have, have those in your back pocket, you know that you can call them at any time, you know, You've, you've got that support there and there is no shame in needing that support. This is a global pandemic that nobody has ever had to work through before. So if we need extra support, we should be taking it. Yeah. And a lot of those are all of them. They're all anonymous as well. So, um, yeah. you know, our, our boarding students and our boarding staff don't need to feel ashamed or anything like that. Um, as no. Mentioned. And I think one way I always think of that asking for help is if you were isolating and you tripped in the hotel room or in the isolation room and you really rolled your ankle and couldn't walk, you would ring a GP, you would ring a physio and and talk to them through it on the phone. (laughs) It wouldn't matter whether you're isolating or not. So, hey, if your mind's had a little bit of an injury there, you know, it's under a bit of stress, we should be doing the same thing. We should Mm. be reaching out just as if we would if we had a physical health difficulty. Great point. 
great point. And that's a, a really great way to, to, to finish our chat today, Ilya. And, and thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Lots of pieces of gold in there that our, our, our boarding students and our boarding staff uh, are able to take away around dealing with isolation, quarantine, and of course, mindfulness. Uh, if anyone does have any questions for Ilya or, or Komodo, um, please reach out to us at ABSA. We'd love to put you in contact with them uh, and the work that they do. They do a wonderful job. Uh, and Ilya, thank you so much for joining us um, on our podcast today. Absolutely no worries. All the best, everyone. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week on the ABSA podcast, Study Time.